somewhere between waking and sleeping. On our journey towards the unfathomable deep, there comes a thin moment where we have one foot in the waking world, and the other is in that other world where we relinquish conscious control. Pausing here and straddled between two planets that drive one another like gears, the attentive traveller will notice a narrow door, only wide enough to sidle through. This is the border of sleep, where imagination and reality are braided together, a chasm in the crust of consciousness, venting the hot pumice of imagery into the irresistible magma of narrative. Welcome to episode 23 of Stories from the Borders of Sleep, a weekly podcast of curious tales from bordersofsleep.com, featuring original stories by your host, Seymour Jacklin. Visit bordersofsleep.com for more information or to leave some feedback. Artwork is by Robin Trainer, production by Tim Wiles, and the soundtrack for this week's episode is from Enchanted Wind by Susan Teng and that is available from magnitune.com. So, if you're ready to journey with me, then I shall begin. The Ferryman by Seymour Jacklin There was a boy, a very strange, enchanted boy. His parents had given him the name Turpin, which immediately marked him out from his peers, who wore commoner names like John and Stephen. He added to that his father's surname, Whittington, and so signed himself Turpin Whittington. He was, in fact, completely deaf in his left ear from birth. But he was marked in other ways too, and not least by his proclivity for tumbling into fairyland with no prior warning or provocation. As you know, the land of fairy is never far from us, touching our own world more closely at points, as if they are two fabrics that are tacked together with magical pins. Turpin had no way of controlling these tumbles across from one fabric to another. It was rather like tripping over a paving stone. He would be walking along, and suddenly the world would tip like one of those sand and water pictures that can be turned through 180 degrees to settle into a different pattern. So it happened, as he was walking to school one morning, that he found himself, after a few dizzying seconds, watching the grains settle into a completely different landscape to the one through which the pavements between his home and his school usually passed. In fact, he found himself in a silent grove of ancient oaks, encrusted with grey lichen and standing with their gnarly roots in moss and damp. With a sigh, for this was not the first time he had lost his way at an inconvenient moment, he kept walking, hoping to find his way out from among the trees to a place where he might be able to get a bearing on his surroundings and return home by way of one of those tacking pins I mentioned between the fabrics. Such points of entry and exit often take the form of a shrub or an outcrop of granite or a silent pond or some other natural feature. It quickly became clear that he was in the midst of more of a forest than a grove, a stunted forest, 
that tirelessly repeated the motif of twisted and petrified old oak boughs in green and grey, with no relief for the eye or distinguishing features by which to measure his progress. So it was with relief that he noticed a scrap of red out of the corner of his eye that seemed to be moving parallel to him, away to his right and flickering in and out of sight between the tree trunks. He adjusted his course to see what it was, and presently came in sight of a tiny little man, but a cubit in height, portly in girth, and wearing the crimson jacket and pointed hat and the long beard that marked him for a gnome. The fellow was sitting upon a root and mopping his brow and looked at Turpin as if he'd stopped to wait for him. Gnomes are very rarely the first to speak in encounters with strangers, preferring to get the advantage of them by silence and leaving the other to make the first move. For his part, Turpin did not have time for niceties. He was on his way to school, after all, and was only annoyed at being waylaid by some capricious enchantment. "'Do you know the way out of here?' he demanded of the gnome. "'Bugloss, pleased to meet you,' said the gnome getting to his feet again, which seemed to make no difference to his height, and raising his right hand, palm forward, while keeping his left hand behind his back, in the formal salute that consisted of a gnome's greeting. For gnomes had long ago learnt not to try and shake hands with other creatures several times their size. Bugloss, said Turpin, thinking of the spiky-stemmed blue flowers that grew in the old quarry behind his grandmother's house. "'Then you don't belong here any more than I do. "'How do we get out of here?' "'Quite right,' said Bugloss. "'My feet are uncomfortably damp. "'Could you not let me ride upon your shoulders for a bit? "'And I will show you the way out, for I have been here before.' "'Is it far?' asked Turpin. "'Not as far for you as it would be for me in my short legs,' came the reply." Turpin obligingly picked the little man up, assuming that the correct way to pick up a gnome was to grab him under the arms like a child, and set him on his right shoulder, by his good ear, and facing forwards with his legs dangling down. "'Now where do we go?' he asked. "'Where does who go?' said the gnome. "'Us. I mean, we. No, us,' said Turpin, stumbling over his grammar. "'And who is we?' asked the gnome. "'Well, you and I. Where do you and I need to go to get out of this forest?' "'I know I. But who are you?' "'Oh, sorry. I'm Turpin. Turpin Whittington.' "'Very good,' chuckled the gnome. "'Well, walk on.' He spoke as if to a horse. "'I'll tell you if you turn the wrong way.' Turpin began to weave his way onward, keeping it as straight as possible. After they'd gone a little way, he asked Bugloss if they were making good progress. The little man chuckled again and said, Have patience, Turpin. I'll play a game with you. It's called You Spy With Your Little Eye. I will show you six things and then one more. But upon the sixth, you can be sure that we are almost there. Then he continued, Look around you. What do you see? "'Just the same old trees that have been here for the last mile,' said Turpin. "'And? And moss? And?' 
lichen and there was a long pause there's a faint mist said turpin at length and said bugloss turpin could really see nothing else give me a clue he said irritably the gnome blew on his ear what could that mean wind breath i can see the moisture in our breath like a thicker mist when we breathe out he ventured good said bugloss the forest makes one sort of mist and you make another yours is the thicker but the forests last longer as they went on the ground underfoot became boggier and somewhat slippery at times the mist around them also seemed to be thickening now what do you see asked bugloss turpin noticed that the branches around them were studded with droplets of water condensing and sometimes falling like fat raindrops drops of water he said tree wine exclaimed bugloss let's refresh ourselves and he made turpin stop while he took the tip of a twig and pointed it down towards his mouth so that the water droplets gathering along it flowed down and dripped onto his tongue delicious said bugloss smacking his lips you try while bugloss filled a small flask from his belt turpin had his first taste of tree wine it was delicious deeply refreshing with the slightest hint of bitter lichen and sweet bark just a few drops were enough to encourage him on the oak wine is good round here but i'm more fond of the ash wine if i can find it said bugloss after several more minutes they suddenly found the cover breaking over their heads and they came to the bank of what appeared to be a wide lake surrounded by ranks of upright bulrushes like the pike staffs of a waiting army now what do you see asked bugloss lots of things said turpin and began to list them a lake reeds mud fog ripples look at the reeds what do you see said bugloss some of them are bent and trailing their tips in the water the rush stems are hollow the seed heads are like brown velvet said turpin and from these come baskets to carry things in and flutes to play upon said bugloss but always the baskets and the flutes are longing to come back to the waterside now bugloss pointed out into the fog that lay over the lake in thick and thinner shifting swirls what do you see over there turpin could just make out a dark shape coming towards them on the water repeating the very softest splashing sound in a slow meter there came a flat-bottomed ferry piloted by a tall hooded figure who stood in the stern with a punting pole to propel and steer it a ferryman he said you've seen well said bugloss as if the appearance of the ferry should be entirely credited to turpin's ability to see it by now the square end of the prow of the vessel had nudged up to the bank at their feet 
and the figure waved for them to climb aboard. I've nothing to pay you for our crossing, Turpin called to the figure. For all he knew about ferrymen is that they must be paid, and one should never be tricked into changing places with them, even for a moment. The figure called back with a man's voice, surprisingly warm and gentle. Passage is free. Come aboard. I'll stay upon your shoulder if you don't mind, for I don't have any sea legs, said Bugloss. And Turpin stepped onto the ferry, which began to move out smoothly from the bank immediately. After just two long pushes from the ferryman's pole, the shore they left was enveloped in fog, and they seemed suspended in grey above, around and below, and but for the rhythmic slapping of the wash and the occasional splish of the pole, they would have thought themselves motionless. "'What do you see?' asked Bugloss. "'His eyes are in shadow under that hood, "'but his mouth is kind and his beard is benevolent like Father Christmas's,' "'said Turpin in a low voice, "'although he knew the ferryman could hear him. "'Like the taxi drivers in his hometown, "'he assumed that ferrymen were professionals "'who were sufficiently aloof as to deaden their interest in passengers' conversations. "'He forgot for a moment that he was getting a free ride. "'Yes, he is a good man.' I know him by repute, said Bugloss. He never charges those who can't afford to pay their crossing, nor does he trick them into taking over from him, even for a moment. They glided on. There was still no sign of the far bank or anything else in the inscrutable fog that lay about them and eddied lazily at their passing. What do you see now? came the question, finally. Turpin thought hard before he spoke up. I see deep water. It feels very deep beneath us, but it cannot be so, for it must be shallow enough for the ferryman's pole to reach the bottom. Why don't you ask how deep it is? suggested Bugloss. Turpin called to the ferryman. How deep is the water? The ferryman said nothing but began to pull the pole up out of the water, hand over hand, over hand. It went on, drawing the pole up from the depths, hand over hand, and it kept on coming, the top of it disappearing into the mist above them. Turpin felt a sudden catching in his gut, and watched in horror as the unending length of the pole became apparent. Stop! he shouted. I don't want to know. The ferryman stopped and allowed the pole to slip silently back down through his palms like a long black serpent diving into the water. The three occupants of the ferry were motionless and the ferry itself had ceased to move. Shall we continue? asked the ferryman. No, said Turpin. I need to think. Sorry, I, I don't know if I want to go wherever we're going. What shall I do? He asked Bugloss. Let me sit on your other shoulder, said Bugloss. But I won't be able to hear you on that side, said Turpin. You won't need to. Our game of you spy with your little eye is almost done. So saying, Bugloss swung himself neatly onto Turpin's other shoulder and immediately began to look intently into his left ear. 
What are you doing? asked Turpin. I think I can see something blocking it, the gnome replied. Then he said, With your leave, I think I'll just... But without waiting for Turpin's leave, he seemed to reach into his ear and to start pulling something. He kept on pulling. Out of the corner of his eye, Turpin could just about see that Bugloss had hold of what appeared to be a very fine piece of silver cord that he was winding around his left hand as he drew it out with his right. "'What is it?' he asked. "'I don't know, but it's very strong and lissom like fishing twine, and your ear's full of it.' "'It's working. I can hear better already,' Turpin exclaimed, as for the first time in his life the world around him dawned in stereo. He was dizzy with a surge of fresh sensations. It seemed that not just his powers of hearing had doubled, but all his senses. "'My God, I can hear!' he shouted." The ferryman's mouth opened in a wide smile, and Bugloss patted him on the cheek. "'There you are. I think I've got it all out,' he said, depositing a thick coil of silvery thread into Turpin's hand. "'What is it?' he asked again in wonder, incredulous that his left ear could have been blocked forever by a length of fishing line. "'I've a fishing hook if you want it,' offered Bugloss. Suddenly it seemed to have every rightness about it, given the celebratory atmosphere on the boat, that they should do a spot of fishing. The ferryman indicated with his foot where a box lay on the duckboards under their feet and said, There's bait and more tackle in there if you need it. He rammed the pole down so that it stuck out of the water perpendicularly and lashed the boat to it with a piece of rope. Then, he sat down in the stern while Turpin and Bugloss set up their lines and dropped them over the side. A companionable silence settled over the anglers and their pilot as they watched their floats. The mist thinned a little above them and let a few sunbeams into their world. Turpin was delighting in each and every creak of the woodwork or ripple of water against the sides of the boat as the sounds of them came to him through his newly cured ear, like rain upon a dry droughted land. Everything was most pleasant. And then suddenly, there was a bite on the line, and his float bobbed twice and began to move away from the boat rapidly. "'I've got a bite!' he yelled, and began to pull the line in, wrapping it around his free hand and pulling it in with the other. There was a great deal of shouting and pulling and rocking as he brought the catch towards them. What could it be? But they all fell silent as the first sight of the prey broke the surface, for as truly as Turpin's silver line stretched plumb straight from his hands out over the water, it ended in the mouth of an enormous fish, whose jaws were wide enough to swallow the ferry and its passengers without touching sides. The creature was offering no resistance, but was floating lazily towards them, looking straight at Turpin with intelligent eyes the size of melons. All the easy joviality of the last few moments had vanished, but the ferryman had stood up to his full height and was looking down at the fish with his hood drawn back far enough for his eyes to be seen. They were also soft and deep set about with smiling lines, and they looked at the fish without fear. Turpin looked from one to the other, but the fish never removed its gaze from him. 
the great fish spoke. Mortal, it bellowed. You have snared my life with yours and I am now bound to grant you one wish. Turpin closed his mouth, which had fallen open at the sight of the thing, and tried to grasp onto something to slow down the headlong cascade of his thoughts. In just a few minutes he'd heard properly for the first time, and now he was being spoken to by a fish the size of a bus. "'Should you wish it, I can return you to the world of mortals,' continued the fish. Turpin let those words sink home and give him something to hold on. "'Yes, that is my wish,' he said. "'Take me home.' "'Climb onto my back, then,' said the fish, coming closer. "'Keep hold of your line in case we become separated.' As if in a trance, Turpin stepped easily from the ferry onto the fish's wide back between its eyes and knelt down. "'Goodbye,' he shouted. "'See you again, I hope,' called Bugloss. And in the next instant they dived, and the grey waters closed over his head, and the world seemed to tilt through 180 degrees like a sand picture, and as it settled he found himself on the way to school. And in his ears, yes, in both his ears, was the sound of traffic. And as he walked, he kicked an acorn that was lying on the pavement, It skipped along and seemed to deliberately turn in through the garden gate of one of the houses along the terrace. As he walked past that garden, he didn't fail to notice the crimson-jacketed and pointy-hatted garden gnome, contentedly sitting on a concrete toadstool, with a fishing rod in his hand and a glint in his button-black painted eyes.